just for a second consider, this country is running the way it was built to run. Like this country was made by oppressive white men who came here and were willing to kill everything in their way to get money, like for profit and for their own comfortability. And it's all running the way that they had planned it. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Lindsay Simsick. And I'm Krista Williams. And yeah, truly we are, we're grateful that you're here. We know there are so many podcasts you can listen to and, and other things that you can be engaging with at this time. And we appreciate you and... Hope to deliver information, conversations that will support you in your growth, however hard it might be. And just want to honor, especially during this time in history, this is May, almost June 2020. And, you know, there is just so much unrest because the system does not support every human being in this country. And so there's just a a plea and a cry for change. And um, yeah, I just want to recognize everyone's experiences and know that what you are feeling is is okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, you know, the reason and, and intention behind us having this conversation or bringing this conversation that we had with Rachel back to the podcast was for expediency purposes, you know, with the what's happened over the past couple of days, we have to get the messages out again to our community. And we are working on bringing more of these conversations back again to the podcast. We've talked about white fragility before. We've talked about white supremacy. We've talked about allyship and we've talked about the issue of race, but it needs to be a conversation that's brought again to the forefront within almost 30. So we are excited and honored to bring this to you again. Rachel is really doing the work within the space to show us the way to understanding, you know, how we engage with white supremacy, how we as white people are playing a huge role in all of the race conversations that are going on and how we can be better in regards to anti-racism. We here at Almost 30 have been um, working with coaches on this. We are really doing everything that we can and we are always open ears to doing better. We could always do better. I could always do better. I am, you know, in a deep bow to the women of our community, the women of color, the black women who have really helped and supported us to show us the way within better understanding them and their story and how we really can work against the system that has created this huge rift in society. Mm-hmm. 
and, and so it, much more, so much more. Yeah. And I think what's really important to recognize too is that, you know, our our silence, you know, I'm not speaking our, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. the collective is also super deafening and is contributing to the conversation in a way that will only perpetuate this cycle of inequality and racism. And so, you know, I... I can relate at the beginning of this work in my life, I did feel really uncomfortable and I didn't know what to say because I was, I think I've grown up wanting to say the right things to people. I want Mm -hmm. people to think I'm good. I want people to just see me in my best light. And so in doing this work, whether it's with Aaron or our friend Rachel Rosen and even um, engaging with Rachel Cargill's work on The Great Unlearn, it's not about saying the right thing. It is showing up to the conversation. Is It is engaging. It is being uncomfortable, actually. And I... And I, there's such a difference between being uncomfortable and feeling unsafe. Completely. And so many, you know, Black Americans and women of color and men of color feel unsafe. Completely. Completely. Yeah, I was watching um, Bishop T.D. Jakes. He was talking to Carl Lentz and he was saying that people are desperate for change but don't want to cause trouble. And that really hit me Mm. because there is this, I don't know, there just is this belief that causing trouble doesn't create change or that causing trouble is making things worse. And I think the trouble is just like the shaking of what isn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... Trouble for who? Let's be careful about the language that we use. Like the trouble is just like, let's shake shake this up so it can break down and be built in a way that supports every human being. Yep. Well, again, trouble for who? Exactly. Trouble for... Trouble for... We need to be... Trouble for who? We need to be troubled. Yep. I really love to, you know, and and the sentiment that I want to bring, you know, before we get into this episode is really in um, so much of this, like, in with what Rachel does is she provides so much resource and there's so many women of color and women that are doing this work to support all people in understanding how white supremacy plays a role in our everyday. And I know that people are excited and activated and are posting and retweeting and all these things, but there's so much more to doing the work that happens in solidarity. And I really truly believe that it's just not about posting and it's not about Mm -hmm. tweeting and it's not about sharing a graphic. It's so much about actually reading the links that are shared and reading the documents that are sent and attending the courses by Black women and women of color that can help us to make the change. Yes. So I just really want to honor those that are doing work in solidarity. And we were reading something from one of our friends that that called out something from Eddie Moore Jr. Eddie created a 21-day racial equity habit-building challenge. So it's a 21-day racial equity habit-building challenge, which we can have in our show notes here. And it says that changing habits is complex and involves first reading, then listening, watching, noticing, Connecting, engaging, acting, reflecting, and then staying inspired. So once again, that's reading, listening, watching, noticing, connecting, 
engaging, acting, reflecting, and staying inspired. So, so much of this work will happen within the reading materials that have been shared, whether it's within our Facebook group or within other resources that you found. There's so many amazing resources and places that we can point you to to find books um, and doing the work. But it's just the beginning. And we just had a great conversation with, with one of our friends about this who works in the space. And she talked about it and she related it to almost being like um, your wellness your wellness routine or your wellness habit that it happens over time. Mm -hmm. You know, this takes this work. You can't just start a diet and see results immediately. And I know that's a trite example to, to parallel, but I'm hopeful you can, it, it, it lands. You have to continue to do the work in increments over time to really see the results of change in our world and in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting point about resharing, retweeting. It just makes me kind of think about like our relationship with social media where it's like quickly that feeling of discomfort of, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm feeling a certain way about what's going on. I don't actually know why I'm feeling that, but I have an inkling that perhaps I haven't been a part of the solution. But let me reshare, retweet. And by the way, resharing, retweeting is important. 100%. And there needs to be action. And yeah. like you said, what you do in solidarity. But it's just interesting, our relationship with social media, where all of a sudden that discomfort is diffused by, you know, a hundred likes about the post that yes. you retweeted. And yep, you're like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> People feel like because they get the validation back from social media, they feel like their work is done. Yes. Because, you know, so so this is exactly what you're saying. It's the situation happens where they feel uncomfortable and then they they post the thing and they get the likes on the graphic that they reshared and they're feeling like it's complete, mm -hmm. but that's really not it. Or at least for the moment, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like a hit. Yes, of course. It's like a little numbing. Uh -huh. And so I don't know if we've sat with it long enough to just be like so shaken and troubled mm -hmm. and just like sober, mm -hmm. you know? And, mm. and so I just, I want us to really look at how we numb in these times or seek validation in these times in which that validation is really not, it's only pointing to um, a, a very surface level good job mm -hmm. in that like, how can on a soul Pandering. level, we really like just fucking go there. Like yep. we were not brought to this earth at this time. Like mm -hmm. think about it. We are human beings on the earth, 2020, like where we are witnessing what we never perhaps thought we would witness in mm -hmm. our in our lifetime. But we are here for a reason, like not to be super like woo-woo about this, but we are definitely here for a reason. So please, like may we not take like our soul's choice to be here for granted and and take our especially like speaking as a white woman, like take our privilege for granted because there's so much power in like who, our, our platform, the color of our, our skin, let us use it for good. Let us use it to make sure that like our, the black Americans in this country reap the same equal benefits that we have always mm -hmm. or just experienced. feel fucking safe. Feel safe. Feel, feel free. Safe. Yeah, feel free. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and it's, mm. I say it's funny because that's just like a, a, 
a a phrase like I say, but it's not funny at all. But T.D. Jakes was talking about, he's like, the Emancipation Proclamation, we believed you. Like, that's Mm. why it's so heartbreaking. Mm. The Black community believed the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. Like, it's just such a, yeah, it's, if we really look at it, Mm -hmm. it is, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And there's no way that we cannot, cannot do something. Mm. Yes. So we're working on um, some things at HQ, you know, workshops and uh, courses and ways that we can dig into material with you to support you along the journey because we are also in it with you. You know, we are always just right, right along with you learning through the process. And I'm really excited that we can share this conversation with Rachel. Um, It was definitely an earlier time. You know, she has just done such an amazing job Mm -hmm. building and building and building. She has her foundation. She has, you know, her community. She has her so many courses and, and offerings and resources for people. And she's been featured in so many publications, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar, The TEDx Stage. Um, and she was on Red Table Talk, which made me so happy. She's a mm-hmm. super dynamic entrepreneur. And we are so grateful that we can share in this with you today. Yeah, this conversation was from December 2018, just to give it context. And you can learn more, rachelcargill.com. She also founded the Loveland Foundation, and she just is so incredible. She raises money to make sure that marginalized peoples have access to healing, so therapy included, which is incredible. Uh, She also has The Great Unlearn, which is um, on Patreon, and it's a really, really deep resource for all of us who are wanting to do the work and unlearn so much of what we were taught in school that has um, influenced the way in which we see the world. And it's it's been really great to dig into that work. So rachelcarkle.com, follow her at rachel.carkle on Instagram. And we appreciate you listening. So my mom like found this space that she could afford within the most opportunity based area, I think closest to, you know, where she grew up. And so I got this very interesting experience of like, I knew we didn't have what everyone else had, but I also recognized that I was easily on the same level as everyone else because I was taking the same classes and we were doing the same things. And so I was always very just aware that there was just something that made us different, but also I was very frustrated about the fact that everyone else had like these big houses and all these mm. cars and they went on vacations all the time. But I'm like, well, my mom's just like your mom and I'm just like you and I don't understand what the difference yeah. is. And so I think I've, I've just been always very aware and introspective of like socioeconomic things, um, race issues, and just looking around and considering what is it that makes us different and what is it that makes us the same and why is this a thing anyways? Mm. Did you have an ability to explore that when you were young? Like with your mom, did you talk about stuff? Or like, if you're the only, I just am thinking like, if you're the only black person in your community, like how do you kind of explore that and like compare and contrast, I guess, with like the people there? When we went to visit the city, I would see like my family and there's tons of black people there and our church was very black and... 
Um, so it wasn't like I wasn't around Black people, but you know, your, my day-to-day life wasn't. And so I would start asking questions. I have a very distinct memory. I have a cousin who was born, we were born a week apart and we would always have our birthday parties together. And we got to a, the age where we just didn't want to do that anymore. And I remember I came to her sleepover and I was walking up the stairs and I heard her say, oh, this is my cousin, Rachel. She talks white, don't mind her. And she lived in the city and she had like all Black friends. And so I remember just being very... Um, okay, there's something different about me from them and there's something different about me from them and I need to figure out who I am and where I fit and what this means for me. And there was just um, a lot of grappling within myself around kind of what my identity was, both as a Black person, because it wasn't like I was ashamed of being Black, but I recognized that within the Black community, like as I experienced at that very young age, hearing Mm -hmm. my cousin say that, that there was something that they saw different about me. And then being with my white friends who I absolutely adored being with them and we had so much fun. But there was also something very obviously different um, about me with them as well. So just a lot of questioning and it was never really necessarily, I don't know, was it sad? It wasn't necessarily sadness, right. but it was just like deep thinking. Totally. Yeah. And that it doesn't feel, and it, it did it ever feel like bullying? Because it more feels just like <clears throat> like the ignorance or how they grew up and kind of like, them like I feel like kids just like have no filter yeah, and they I just kids, say yeah I think it's kids being kids because I think if so let's take Which the example is not of, an excuse but right uh, you know so what I mean. let's just take the example of my cousin who said that so she wasn't saying I don't think she was saying it in like a bad way just right. like prepare I know it's going to be confusing when you hear my black cousin talk she's going to mm. sound very white but like don't I don't think she was necessarily being mean but it did make me feel some type of way like okay do I need to change the way that I talk mm. I thought this is how people talked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, questioning things. And then, you know, just being with my white friends, I have memories of when I would be, we would, the summertime and we would be laying outside and they would be tanning and they would say like, oh, okay, Rachel, well, we're going to get dark. Does that mean you're going to get lighter when you lay out in the sun? Just like kids asking questions, trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what it means and what the differences are. Um, And then dating came into play and that was a whole thing because none of the white boys at my school even thought about me or considered me. And then um, I got so much attention from the Black guys because they thought I was so Mm. different. And I was like, am I? Mm. And they thought like, oh, well, you talk different and, you know, all these things. And so- you're not talking Black? Yeah, because I'm not talking quote unquote (laughs) Black. And I'm not talking, you know, and also, you know, I would like, my mom would take me to like the ballet and all these things that my inner city friends or mm. family didn't necessarily do just because they weren't interested or they didn't they hadn't had that introduction yet. And so yeah, it was just a lot of identifying the things that made me feel confident and the things that made me feel grounded. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of swaying between both of those worlds. Mm. Which is so helpful for you now. Oh, now those are my best qualities. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, before perfect. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it funny? Now you're like, oh, okay, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're right. And so as I'm writing my book and as I'm doing this work specifically, you know, my audience is like 90% white women. And I feel, I'm guessing this sense of comfortability because I grew up around white people all the time that I like kind of could have this space of, okay, I can speak to you. And Mm -hmm. we have this understanding between ourselves. So it wasn't too much of a disconnect, but also I'm so grateful that I get to deep dive into so much of what constitutes my Blackness and me understanding who I am as a Black woman. Because as I'm doing this research in order to do my anti-racism work, I'm also doing this research into discovering myself 
and my understanding of who I am as a black woman. Mm. And so I'm, I am super grateful to be in this space. Mm. At what point did you kind of find your voice? You said you were very introspective about it, you know, when you were a kid or in your teens, but was there a moment that you had like a meaningful conversation that you're like, oh, wow, like I can talk about this or start a conversation around this? Um, I don't know. I think a lot of it at first started out looking at socioeconomic stuff. Like I didn't think about it as a race issue. I looked at it as a financial issue. Like they have more money than we do. Why? And what's the difference? And then that goes into race issues because a lot of the marginalization in this country is race-based due to our long history of racial issues. They have explained episode, have you seen? On Netflix, like an explanation of the, why the, there's the socioeconomic difference between races. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, I, I am interested to see that, but it's like not rocket science to think about the fact that totally people 100%. were enslaved mm. and they were segregated mm. and they didn't have access to wealth and property and education. Of course, there's going to be a disconnect in what white people, they have this opportunity to continue to build wealth. And I say in my lectures and in my workshops, you know, black people have to start over every generation often because like they were enslaved mm. and then they got segregated. And then, you know, there were times when black people had, there was, things called like Black Wall Street, where there was like huge wealth areas in Oklahoma um, where Black people had tons of money and they had built their own banks and their own hospitals and blah, blah, blah. And then white people came and burned the whole city down Mm. and people had to start all over again. And so um, it it doesn't take rocket science to recognize that. But unless you're actually looking for those answers, you're not necessarily going to sit there and think about it. So when I was younger, a lot of them were socioeconomic looking at who had what, like me seeing who had a bigger house compared to ours and who could go on vacation. And then as I learned more, I was like, oh, okay, this is a race thing as well. And so I just remember, (laughs) I have a very specific memory of going to, I think it was like my soccer party. Like it was our soccer team and we were having our end of the season party. And I went up to the, like one of the parents were hosting us in their huge house. And I remember going up to the dad and like, can you explain to me what you do to have this? And I was like 10. And he, and I remember him saying like, I work with computers. I was like, oh, okay. Well, how did like, take it back? Like what else? (laughs) I remember him telling like, and he was like, well, I went to college and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, there was all these things I didn't know Mm. about how I just didn't know about wealth. And I didn't know about income. My mother, she, um, she was on disability my whole life. My mom has polio. And, um, so she was always at home and she never, um, was out working. And so I just, there was so much, I just didn't know. And as I kind of explored things more. And then by the time I got to high school, I remember asking my mom, like, I really want to go to this private high school. What do we have to do? And she applied for me and we got financial aid and they had this thing where you could work like the students could work with the custodians after school and that money would go, those hours would go towards their tuition. So I did that. So I could go there and I would just look around and see what other people were doing and say like, okay, that's something that looks like it's going to lead mm. lead to something. So I, at a very young age, I was very intentional on understanding things so that I could make better decisions for myself. When I first got out of high school and I went to college, I was studying social work at the University of Toledo. Yeah, yeah. And then... I got married my sophomore year. That was a whole story, blah, blah, blah. After I left that marriage, now I, I was in D.C. and I'm in New York and I'm studying anthropology at Columbia. That's what wow. I okay. Yeah. So then I guess like this journey, like I'm just trying to, like, so you were always inquisitive and you're always, but like what was like, I guess the jumping off point where it was like, I 
you know, almost like the culmination of everything that you've had in your life to get all these skills to be that voice and to be this person that's like a bridge between, you know, these these hard issues. The election. Yeah. Well, after that photo went viral of me and my friend Dana, and I started getting two very different reactions from my white audience and from my black audience. And a lot of white people were saying like, yeah, we love that. Go women, blah, blah, blah. And all of this positivity. And I should say optimism. And then um, the photos start going viral with like Afropunk and more black-based audiences. And people were like, wow, Rachel, you know, the feminist movement isn't for black women. Like, you know that this and this Mm. and this has happened. And I'm like, wait, what don't I know? And what do I need to learn? And what do I need to impart to all of these white women who I have... Um, you know, access to and influence with. um, And that's when I decided that I was going to start teaching on what I was learning. Mm. And so that's what I love about my platform and about what I do now is because I'm in school. um, I'm so great. I'm so lucky to be at such a great university and I'm also doing all of my own research. And then I just like, I literally like download it into my brain and then go and like teach it (laughs) as soon as I learn it because I just want to continue. Both bringing stuff out of the academy, it's so pretentious and so closed off. It's, you know, it's stupid. Like all of these academic conferences, it's like a bunch of academics talking to each other instead of getting this very valuable information it's to all the public. conferences, honey. Yeah, I know. Wellness yeah, shit. You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yo, I sure. know all this. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so my goal is to take this information out of the academy into the public. And so that's why I love the fact that my lectures are public. I'm not doing it. There's no organization controlling where I go, what I do, who I talk to. Um, wow. So this public lecturing and public engagement on these topics. And oftentimes I, you know, push my readers out, send them out an academic journal link instead of just like, a, you know, BuzzFeed article. Like I want us to go deeper and really all um, do this more critical discourse around it instead of like opinion-based sound bites you know, very surface things. And I'm amazed by how intensely my community engages in what I throw at them, even though it's much deeper than we usually are getting from the internet. Mm. Mm. How has the way in which you've like called white women in evolved, especially recently, I Mm. feel like. Yeah, my audience has grown so much that I I just can't exist. Even when we first reached out. Yeah, I, I, just, crazy. I just don't exist. I just can't, you can't, I can't exist the same way as I was I when know. I had 10,000 followers as I do with, I think I'm at like 115 mm-hmm. now. And it's Damn. just, and now you're so rich. <laughs> yeah, I'm so rich. Now I go to the dentist. So much money. I go to the dentist all the time. <laughs> so one of the things I do as a rich person. <laughs> I think people do like associate followers with how much money you have, and it's really they funny. Think you make hundred fifteen k. You make hundred like just K. from the back. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone sends me a dollar every year. <laughs> Each follower is one dollar. <laughs> But wait, what were you? I know. I'm sorry. What is the way in which you've changed oh, the changed way you the talk way to I white women? Yeah. So before, when we were talking, it was it was able to be more of a conversation because I had like the people who were following me just knew me better and mm-hmm. they they followed my work more closely. I think. But now with more people coming in, I just can't control the conversation. Not control, but I can't manage the conversation like I used to. So. I kind of 
put, I think now I kind of just put out information and give action items like, okay, this is what I'm telling you. This is what you need to learn. And these are some actions you can take as opposed to like, let's talk about it here. And now those conversations, which I really like about it is that instead of doing them on Instagram, like I used to do now, I'm like, okay, go learn this stuff and I'll be lecturing in your city. Come out. We can talk about it in person. Um, I do my intensive workshops. So I, we do three hours of sitting around and having these deeper conversations. So mm-hmm. I think I used to have it in like smaller groups online, but now I'm just giving information to a bigger audience and then pulling people offline to have more intimate conversations. And I hope, I know I can't get to everyone in person, but I hope that people are able to reflect that in their own platforms or lives. I love homes. that. And for, yeah, because I guess for the, so for the conversation that that are being had within, you know, your comments and your DMs and stuff like that, like, you're obviously not going to silence anyone, but how do you, like, do you respond to everyone? Like, how do, no. how do I, yeah, like, what do you do to like... <laughs> no, I definitely don't respond to everyone. A lot of questions that are asked to me are easily Googleable. And so if you can Google it, I'm not going to answer. And if you really wanted to know, you'll Google it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people expect emotional labor and intellectual labor from me um, just because I'm a Black woman and they think that they deserve my time and my answers when literally any the things that many, many people ask me, they could easily go on Google and type the exact same thing that they put into my DMs mm. and find all the information that they need. So I usually, mm. so no, I could, if I answered everything, it'd be a full-time job. And then I would expect that $1 per follower mm-hmm. salary. Yeah. <laughs> Working uh, on a business model here. <laughs> uh, something that you, you mentioned that I want to dig into um, is how the feminist movement is not for Black women as like a comment that you made, I'd love to hear more. Like, yeah, I mean, if you follow my work, a lot of what I'm doing right now, specifically my lecture of unpacking white feminism is looking at the very racist history of the feminist movement, looking at the racist things that um, Susan B. Anthony said and her whole team of feminine, quote unquote, feminist heroes. I say often your heroes are not my heroes. And they were, there was very racist roots to the feminist movement from telling black women if they wanted to march with them for suffrage, they needed to do it at the back of the line and um, going out and telling when they were campaigning for their own um, voting rights, telling white men that if they let, if they let white women vote, that they'll, you know, support white supremacy and not derail from it. And that these were words said out on the campaign, trying to get women's rights to vote. And so um, feminism, the idea of, a feminist movement that is working for all women has never existed. It's mm. always been a white feminism and maybe other women have gotten the benefits of women being able to do something, but never was there an intention from white women to include all women in their feminist efforts. Um, so there is this grand exclusion mm. and it shows today still. Wow. And so that's the work that I'm doing is pretty much holding up a a mirror to white women saying, look at who you are and what this movement is and what it's done to black women and other marginalized. I mean, if we could look at it from other ways that things interest sex with womanhood, like sexuality, things like that. And so basically my work is just holding my work right now. It's not like my life's work, but my work right now is holding up a mirror to white women, uh, reminding themselves about the feminist movement. Uh, where it was, where we are, and what my expectations as a Black woman are moving forward if they want to be able to call themselves feminists. Because right now, as my Harper's Bazaar piece is, uh, white feminism is just white supremacy in heels. Love that. Mm. And Harper's Bazaar was down. Yeah, they were. That piece did really, really well. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece. Yeah, it did really well. And then they brought me on. I think my third, I I should have another one coming out today. That's amazing. 
Yeah. We're often in wellness spaces um, and we've seen the cracks there as well where, you know, it's mainly catering to wealthy white women. Mm -hmm. Um, What has been your experience in like the health and wellness space? Yeah. They hate me. (laughs) The people in the wealth Mm, and health. The, the health and wellness space. What are their names? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so many. <laughs> Let me grab the mic and go there's through. Always ask for names. Yeah. Um, there's there's this identity within that movement of self identifying as someone who is good. Like all of the all of a person's goodness is wrapped up in what they're eating, how they're moving their body, how their body image looks, the words that they're saying to each other, um, the language of the health and wellness space. We all know what words and what terms mm. are used within the health and wellness space. Um, what's lining your cabinets? What food is there? What brands are there? Totally. Um, kind of just the celebrating of each other and how good they are compared to whoever else is in the world and however Mm. else anyone else is existing. So when I come in and I say, well, I got to tell you something, you know, the post that gets so much, well, all my posts get so much (laughs) conversation going. But the one that always gets a lot of conversation is where it asks the question, you know, maybe you manifested it. Maybe it's just your white privilege. And it's it's a conversation around the fact that wealth in this country is not at all evenly dispersed. And there's a ton of socioeconomic issues that this country has from its foundation in slavery and other ways that it's marginalized and oppressed groups in order to make sure. I mean, all the wealth that any white person has in this country was built on the fact that they have come into a country, completely massacred the Native Americans. So all this quote unquote property that they have is on the backs of people of color. And then they bring in black people and Mm -hmm. they're having them completely work to build. Think about all the wealth that black people got for this country with their labor. And that's, so then that's, so we go from completely dismissing Native American people and getting quote unquote property and then bringing in Black people to do all of the work for free (laughs) at, at, at the expense of our bodies and our families and our mental health and our existence. Mm -hmm. Um, So then there's wealth. And we're moving on and there's, it's manifested in a million ways today. And so that when some, uh, you know, when we're go, when we're looking at the wellness world, people are saying, I've manifested all of this opportunity. Actually, you're a white person in America. So you have a lot more opportunity standard than anyone else does. And even when we look at the, also another world that gets this a lot, is like the entrepreneurship world where people are out pitching and, you know, raising funds. And a lot of times they say, investors will say, well, we can't take you on until you have your family and friends round till you get like at least a million from your family and friends round. Okay. Well, a lot of like, <laughs> wow, yeah, family, so like, I, I can't go, I'm not going to get a million from my family and friends. Yo, and, but white women, they go out and they get their million from their family and friends and they're, and then they come to the pitch um, event and they're like, yes, I did it. And I'm, I've manifested and I've worked really hard for this thing. And I don't doubt that you worked hard, but it's because you've had, you have this baseline of opportunity and this baseline of privilege that a lot of people, and I'll talk for black people in particular, cause that's what I am, um, have to work twice as hard for half of what white yeah. people get. Wow. hundred percent. I think about, I guess I think about that uh, well, someone posted that in our group and I was really grateful that they did because it really gave me pause to kind of think about my verbiage with that and the way that in which I would use the word manifest and mm-hmm. I needed that. And I so I was really appreciative that someone did that. 
And I even think about just as an example in, in, in my life, I guess, with my parents paying for my college. Oh yeah. Like that mm-hmm. is, if I was working with, you know, $100,000 in college debt right now, like there's no way I would be where I am, quote unquote, wherever that is. My first thought when you said that, it wasn't even about your debt. It was about how comfortable were you sitting in college, 100%. just going to class. Me, yeah. I, I mean... Working I remember working at time. I was I working that. at J Crew. I remember my phone got cut off a billion times, and you know I was sending money back to my mom, yeah, trying to help yeah. her with whatever was going. Thank and like you. it's 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 not even just the cash that people have to consider. It's like the mental, like you're able to rest, yeah, you're mm. able to sleep. You're able to go out and have fun with friends. You're able to laugh. Yeah. I'm sure your parents had health insurance for you. You're able to go get mental health care if you need it. You, you know, you could go to the dentist. You could go to the doctor. There's all of these things that it's so, it's so far beyond just the money that's sitting. The money definitely matters, but there's so much that comes with financial security that everyone Mm. deserves that security. Mm. There's no reason people should be terrified of things going through life because of like dollars that are in their account or not. And in those formative years, uh, you yeah. know, for that to yeah. like... Yeah, uh, I can't even... I mean, that must have been so great <laughs> to yeah, be able literally. to have that comfortability and that yeah. space to breathe and really study. So think about all the... And think but about then all, I didn't study. Right? <laughs> and, but think about all of the like kid, marginalized groups who are out like working their ass off working for school. And studying. And, they, and studying yeah. and working and worrying about their parents and worrying about what how they're going to get home for Thanksgiving and worrying about all of these things. Um, and then if they don't do as well academically, we're lazy or we're just not smart enough or we're just not trying hard enough, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it's this whole system and that goes into the workforce and that goes into dating and that goes into how we exist in the world. It's all so interconnected. Is there, and and I I don't know this and I kind of feel bad not knowing this, like, is there support for people like... If I'm thinking about my college experience and people who were working simultaneously were trying to, you know, pay off loans as they were trying to get an education and do their best, like, is there extra support there? Like, where's the, where are the holes that like need to be kind of filled in order for them to feel at least a little bit more supported rather? Do you know what I'm saying? Does it not exist? I mean, it looks like money. It looks like scholarships and money, yeah. but also, so right now I'm doing my fundraiser for black women and girls to get therapy. And one thing that cool. people are asking, and it drives me crazy because it's so ingrained in us, women of color. So I made like a little form so I could get everyone's information. Cause basically what I'm doing, I'm taking the money that's coming and I'm literally calling the therapist of the person, like a girl will give me, I say, tell me your name. Tell me mm. your therapist and tell me your therapist's phone number. That's the only information I ask from people on this form. And then I'm like calling the therapist and say, hey, I'm calling. I want to put $500 on Jessica's books. Done. Mm. And all of these women, all of these women of color are coming to me saying, they're like writing me this big long email about like why they deserve it and what they what they did in order to, to, to like be able. And I'm like, girl, stop. Mm. We have been so taught to lay our trauma mm. out, to prove why. So things like scholarships yeah. and things like even wow. welfare, like governmental support, all the support, it's not support, it's control. It's being able to say, and also the like the feeling of, okay, we've helped, we've done something. And so it's if it was really support, it would look like what I'm doing to say like, right. you're a person who we know systematically you need this help and the support to move forward. Um, here, here's the money. Do with it what you know you need for yourself. But instead, there's all of these qualifiers, all of these um, 
you know, mm. people coming into your house. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the welfare system, mm. they, literally they will come into your house to make sure that you're living well enough. They, they'll look at your bank account to see what you're, if you get $10 more than what you said you got, they're going to take it out of and say, you didn't tell us you got that money. We're taxing you for it. Or we're going to take a percentage of it because you never told us. And so it's this like intense control that adds even more stress to what you're already experiencing than necessarily the support that mm. we're, we understand people would need. Mm. And I guess for me personally, like I just started opening my eyes to the work and trying my best. And, you know, as like a white woman, it's like growing up in Ohio, like I was around no black people. Hmm. No. Even in Cincinnati? In Cincinnati. I was a suburb outside. Yeah. It was like cornfields. Yeah. So there was no black people. So I wasn't even really... And then I went to school in Ohio. I went to Miami. Hmm. Not a lot of white. Yeah. The whitest school ever. Yeah. Such a white school. It's crazy. And then I was in Chicago for a while in New York. And it was really like when I graduated and I got outside that I was like even around people of different races. So it's like... I mean, I just... And for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, I have so far to go and I have like so much education to do. Like, where can a lot of the women in our community start? Google, like read, like surround yourself. Yeah, there's so many resources in terms of. So my my equation for allyship is education plus empathy plus action equals allyship. Mm. So you need to know, you need to read books. You need to understand the experiences, watch shows, read books, watch movies, listen to the voices of people of color to really understand what their life is about. Like me telling you all this stuff, it's like, oh, I didn't know. So now Mm. you know. And then that should hopefully, I'm assuming, put this put you in a space of like, okay, there's a incredible disconnect here between humanity and dignity and all of Sorry, all of this stuff in the country. And then that should hopefully push you to action. And then if any of those are missing, if you're if you're taking action without empathy, you're performing. And if you're knowing without taking action, I don't know what you're doing. You're just totally. like sitting there comfortably with information. You're been you're basically just knowing what you need to know, yet benefiting from your white privilege or the white supremacy that you benefit from. Yeah. So there's it has to have all of those components in order to be true allyship. Because if it's not, then it's either just like you knowing and continuing in your white supremacy or you taking action. It's really just a performance because you're not really working with the knowledge and empathy you need to really help or you know, be mm. not, help is not the word to really be an accomplice or a support to what people of color are looking for to progress in the country. Mm. And I know you're having a lot of um, one-on-one individual conversation. I can conversations I can imagine where um, you're having to explain or educate. Does that ever get exhausting? Like, how do you take care of yourself? How do you kind of navigate that in a way that yes, you are hopefully the person is leaving the conversation, you know, feeling like, wow. Yeah, it is exhausting. I don't do many one-on-one conversations anymore just because I have created so many resources at this point where I can just direct people. Um, So that takes off a little bit of the pressure um, of having these conversations. But also I just feel like this is my work. And I often get asked by women of color, you know, like Rachel, um, I want to be, or should I be doing what you're doing? You know, how do I communicate with all of these white people who are really hurting me or being violent towards me in a variety of ways? And I always tell people, you know, black people existing is the work. 
us just being in this country, being happy, moving forward, keeping hope, continuing to believe and work towards our successes and our excellence and demanding our dignity and just existing in this world as a Black person is a revolution in itself for Mm -hmm. a country that never, ever wanted us in the first place Mm -hmm. besides to be free labor. Um, And so I always tell people of color, you know, you don't, unless you feel like this is your work, don't feel like you have to deep dive into this work. This is my work for sure. Like literally I did not put a call out to 115,000 white women to follow me. Like there was no sign I made. Mm -hmm. There was no, like, I didn't wake up, you know, like, you know what, I'm going to start talking to white women about race. Like Mm -hmm. never was that any intention. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I now have this platform and this audience, I'm just assuming my ancestors sent them my way and said, Rachel, it's your turn. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I take this as my work and I take pride in it and I have fun with it. And I, you know, it's my living now and this is what I do. But it's definitely not the work of other people. So speaking into the fact that this is my work, I don't think it's as exhausting as it might be for someone who didn't feel like this is what they were meant to be doing. But um, I take a lot of pride in, you know, in the writing that I do and in the speaking that I do. And so um, I take it, I'm assuming I feel the same way anyone does when they're working a job. But there is a lot of decompressing I have to do after every lecture and after every workshop and um, every podcast that I'm doing mm-hmm. and every speaking opportunity because it's, you know, it's not like going into, into an office and clocking out. It's like going in and speaking on my own truth and my own trauma and my own um, frustrations and my own joys. And there's just mm-hmm. so much of myself in this because I am a Black woman, but also the exhaustion of, I think really the exhaustion doesn't come in the work. The exhaustion comes in doing this work so hard every day. And then, you know, seeing a little black boy in Brooklyn being accused of sexual assault Mm. by a white woman at the bodega. Like the exhaustion comes in doing this work and still seeing the same shit over and over. It's not so much in the daily work. It's in the emotional like weight of doing this work and then seeing the same shit happen continuously but mm. it's it's this catch 22 of like this sucks and I don't want to fucking do this anymore and this has to keep going yeah yeah I guess for women like for so is a woman of color someone that is not a white woman yes like, okay. so we're talking so not a white woman but I a lot of my work speaks directly to the experiences of black women okay. that's what I can speak to okay confidently okay I just want to talk briefly, not briefly, but um, about what happened this past summer um, when your post about uh, Nia Wilson was taken down or the post after. Yeah. I I mean, I don't want to talk about, I want to talk about kind of like the, how do we change like the regulation? Like you talked about control. So there's Facebook, there's Instagram, and they're able to take down posts like that. Like what? But we what, see crazy posts all the time. All like assholes. the fucking time. I have like, like porn posts, posts every day that give me nightmares. But yeah. also consider the fact that these systems are made by white men who created also this country, and we see how it's being run. Like it's this country. Okay, just for a second, consider this country is running the way it was built to run. Mm. Like this country was made by oppressive white men who came here. And we're willing to kill everything in their way to get money and for like for profit and for their own comfortability. And it's all running the way that they had planned it. Like nothing, nothing should surprise us. We can be angry, but nothing should surprise us because this country is doing exactly what it was built to do. Mm. Yeah. Do you, and I want to talk about comfortability and being uncomfortable. And I feel like, you know, 
maybe it's maybe it's me as a white woman always wanting to be comfortable. Yeah. You know, because you've never had, there's no reason for you to have been uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about that, like being okay with it, what it means. And like, I guess you're just like, well, what you're referring to is what is academically now spoken to. The title is white fragility. Mm. And the fact that white people have never had to talk about race and they've never had to address it head on. And so they have such a low tolerance of talking about it because mm. it's like, it's mm. immediately uncomfortable because you never had to address it and you never had to really come up against what the fact that you live in white skin means for other people. Yep. Um, and so when the com- the conversation comes up, there's this defensiveness and the silencing um, because you just don't want to talk about it because you've never had to. And you're mm. like, wait, I've never had to talk about this. So I'm going to ensure that I don't. And that's a fragility because the tolerance is so low. And so what that means is that people of color are either silenced saying, you know, cutting them off at whatever they're saying, completely dismissing their words, or you your voice getting louder and determining that your feelings are more important than the actual experiences of um, people of color. And so to address that, I often say, you know, white feelings don't matter more than black lives. Mm. And if there's if we see it on the news every day, a black body on the concrete, but you don't want to talk about it because you're uncomfortable, like that's unacceptable. It's just it's just unacceptable. Hundred percent. And where safe? What are safe spaces for people to be having these conversations, like at your events and lectures, or no. like? <laughs> I mean, no, no, we're. It's not. It's never going to be easy. Yeah. And I promise you, as a white person, you'll be safe. Yeah. I always tell in my in my lectures. I always I have them. Um, I'm not I'm not my lecture. My workshop. I have people. I call people out on using words like hurt or afraid mm. or terrified. They'll use these words to describe their feelings when talking about race. Mm. And I go, no, 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 you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Terrified is a black mother sending her kid out knowing that the police could shoot him and the police will never be held accountable. Mm. Scared is walking into, and I think it was in Kansas just a few days ago, a white man went in and shot a few black people in the Kroger, in the grocery store, just because he was tired of black people in his space and he shot them. Those are scared. That's terrified. That's these words that you're using are not your truth. These, the only word that white people can use when talking about race is uncomfortable. Mm. And oftentimes that's, that's held higher than the fear and the trauma and all of these other things that actual black people are feeling as opposed to just the pure discomfort of talking about it in in the safety of your home. I know that you know, part of my experience is of ignorant white people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like, even just in very casual conversation, I can remember grandparents saying inappropriate, beyond inappropriate Mm -hmm. things. And, and, and while I know that's not me, I just feel like this kind of pit where I'm like, how do you, do you go do you like go back and you have conversations like mm-hmm. with your family? Like, yes, that is the ideal, but it's like, it, it's like this feeling of like wanting to move forward and then also wanting to like Redo bring everyone path. else up to fucking speed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, well, the, if, if any, yeah. any white person still on this earth coexisting with black people on this earth, the conversation needs to be had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just is what it like. The mm-hmm. if we're all here in this space, we can never leave it to that's just how it was, or that's no, just what yeah. they thought, or that's how it was when people grew up. 
there's just no excuses because if I, do I still have to walk past your grandpa sitting at the restaurant and hear him say something racist mm-hmm. that will affect, you know, mm-hmm. my own mental health for the rest of, you know, forever. And so there's not an excuse of letting it go because that's just how it is. So yeah, there's work to do across a, a wide range of things. And that's, it's, I promise it's not as hard as what. Yeah. I'm not worried about it being with. hard. I guess it's just like this. I don't know. Um, I don't, for me, it's like, I don't see everyone a lot. I'm very much on my own Island out here. So like just kind of thinking about like, you know, that like those generations that, you know, the, the thought of them doing anything different than what they've always done is like just the most arduous thing to them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, where do you spend your energy? Like, but I, I, I hear you on that and you're so right. I think we have some questions in the group. I know. I wanted to make sure that we gave them a chance to ask some questions. Absolutely. Um, So we talked about wellness, the wellness community, but how the Lauren wanted to ask, how does, how does Rachel think that the wellness community can be more inclusive of people of color slash those of varying socioeconomic statuses? Well, one, consider how much things are costing. It shouldn't cost $60 to go to a yoga class. Mm. And if you're really here about wellness, like wellness, wellness, yeah. <laughs> then it there's not like this high profit margin that we see. And then it's the wellness space is completely commodified. And one way that I've seen it happen a million times is, you know, when, so if we think about when um, Maxine Waters was out doing her work and she used the word reclaiming my time. And if we remember, she said that, and then it got like all of a sudden it's on t-shirts and coffee mugs. And it's like, why is us fighting for our rights turned into a That's business venture? And we see that over and over again, where wellness is being commodified in order to mm. take this thing that everyone deserves mm. and turn it into a, a you know maximum profit business venture. I understand that people have to make money, but there's, you know, you really have to consider what you're branding yourself as in terms of actually being there and available for the wellness of all people. Because I believe that these white women in these spaces are here for wellness, but they're here for the wellness of other white women mm-hmm. who can pay the same amount of money as they can pay to be on an island somewhere doing yoga and eating granola. Like yeah. it's, don't call it wellness then. Call it like your yoga group or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like don't make it about true wellness of all people because it's very obviously not. Mm. So in that situation, it would be like, Focusing on making the price affordable for everyone or yeah, making it doing like, like a not sliding, commodifying it. Sli- yeah, not commodifying it, making yeah. a sliding scale. And also if you consider, and it's those, it's questions like that that say, you know, how can we bring more people of color into our space? Yeah. Think about why people of color don't want to be in your space. <laughs> like yeah. it's not like people of color are walking around and can't find you. Like there's a very <laughs> there's like a very real reason why we don't want to be in that space with you. Yes. And and like consider what it is that you're doing or showing or yeah. representing that makes me be like, mm, I'd rather not. I'm, I'm good. good. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. Yeah, that's all we think. I mean, not all, but like when we look at events and rosters and like conferences and They're stuff. They're all if it's and it's it blows my mind with the feminist movement, the white feminist movement, who will go on and say, like, why are there all men here? I can't believe that someone would put me in a like that would someone even think to put, throw an event where it's only men on the stage and it's only men on the panels. But you guys are a hundred percent on board to walk into a space that's completely white. Zillion percent. Yeah. We we just started really looking at that like in the past couple of years since we've started to have this conversation. Cause like, I mean, I just woke up a few years ago to like every, you know, like my life, I guess. 
And now we look at it every time. We're like, every time. And it's a lot. Like, this is so boring. Like, I don't want to listen. And it's not that, like, if you think about it, it's intentional at this point. It's not like there's not women of color who are doing this work. Also, if you think about things like, okay, so I'm taking, I love talking about this. So I'm taking a class right now called Gender and Sexuality in African History. Mm. And I love it because my professor, every class is titled like, colonization of. So we just recently mm. went through colonization of birth and colonization of motherhood. Dude. And wow. it's basically looking at the ways that white colonists came into these African villages and they said, you need to be in a hospital and you need to not keep the placenta and you need to blah, blah, blah. Like you need to not breastfeed. You need are giving all these other things that need to be done. Like you um, need their, to be laying down their, giving birth. Yeah. Their definition of what a good mother is, mm. um, their definition of what a good woman looks like. And so they would go in and basically what they started to do, they would start training younger African women in their Western medicine so that they could start pushing out the older midwives who were in the, very respected in the village in order to birth the children and do their traditions wow. and all of this stuff. So that's how they did it. They would just train these younger girls when normally the people in the village would only let older women like mm-hmm. be part of their birthing experience. They started to push that out, bring in younger girls to completely um, like drain the culture of their traditions when it comes to birth. And so if we look at all of these very natural birthing things that were done all over the world that were colonized by European people, now, how much does it cost to have a midwife? How much does it cost to go to like a natural birthing center? These things that were just part of our existence got colonized and now it was ripped away from us and we can't even afford it anymore. Yo, tell me another thing about wow. another colonization thing. Uh, like what's another example of a colonization? Something as simple as like colonization of the home. Like people didn't always eat with, like in Af- yeah. if you go to an Ethiopian restaurant today, people eat with, eat with their, their hands. hands. Right. Literally, yeah. they would go into the schools and they would bring these little girls to the schools and they would teach them how to sit at a table, teach them how to eat with a fork and knife, teach them how to, you know, wash clothes a certain way. And like people were existing pretty okay up until the time that the colonizers came in um, and did all this, even colonization of womanhood. And it's almost to make them feel comfortable. Oh, for 100%. sure. To, they're, well, because every to, to Europeans, everyone's a savage. And in my other course that I'm taking called uh, critical, what is it called? Critical approaches um, to social issues. We were looking at, consider academia. And this always, it blew my mind and I'm excited to see I you guys' reaction. <laughs> consider academia. White people are the, default and everything else is to be studied. So like there's Africans, is there any white studies? Like there's African studies, there's Oriental studies, there's, you know, all, if we're looking at throughout the history of the world, whiteness is, white people are the knowers and everything else is to be known. White people are the educated and everyone else is to be studied. Wow. And that's just how it's been for so long. And so looking like literally I'm sitting at Columbia and we're critiquing the academic system, looking at the ways in which whiteness is considered the default. And so when they go into these countries, like, oh, look at these savages and we need to give them civilization. And so literally um, we were reading these like texts from African kings long ago saying that they're, they're like, these white people are coming in and for whatever reason, they keep telling us that we need to get civilized. But now, you know, they're making us have these monogamous marriages or they're making us have, and this was also the missionary, the Christian missionaries. Mm. Yeah, we're hand in hand with the capitalists. So they were coming in and colonizing these spaces and making, so so one example is, so like 
the hospitals, which were run by the Christian missionaries, they would say the only way you could come and get medical support from like this advanced medicine that was beneficial to get some baptized. people is if you converted. And so like, it's, it's just so manipulative and so incredible. And, and if we think about what white savior looks like today, these people going into African countries saying they need us, we need to help them. But really, but they're not, they're, they're not actually asking like, what do you need? <laughs> they're saying mm, we have this and wow. we're going to give it to you. Totally. And, and it's, it's modern day colonization. Like there's nothing different. And so just really, even, you know, womanhood, what's considered a good woman. If, if you look, if you really And of course, I didn't even know this stuff until I started taking this course. But if you look at the way marriages worked and womanhood worked and, you know, the empowerment of women, it's only, there's this need to be empowered because so much was taken away when when colonizers came into these spaces. Um, But now, and then, but white people think they're the default and everyone else needs to come up to where they are, come up to where they are quote unquote, like there's this hierarchy of existence in the world. Like no one else existed before white people. And so they're coming to save everyone all over the world. If you look at a map of like the, what has been colonized by white people, if you think about the way that Africa, like literally they came in and said, we're going to take that. We're going to take that. We're going to take that. Like, why are people in Africa speaking French? Why are people in Africa yeah. speaking Spanish? Why are people in Africa speaking English? It's because they were ta- like, they literally mm. were taken and controlled by these white people. And so there's just so much of our human existence, that we consider whiteness as the default of Mm. beauty, of health, of womanhood, of body shape, of motherhood. You know, it's, it's, there's so much to dig into about it. Damn. I have a pit in my stomach thinking about like my fourth grade social studies. Yo, that's what I think. That's why my kids are not going to normal schools. I don't know what they're going to do, but like, they're going to like watch her. Yes. They're 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 going to go to her. Because like, if I Dude. think about social studies, I'm like, oh, think about uh, Christopher Columbus shit. Are you fucking kidding me? Like me in Ohio learning history? It's a joke. And it's that's just the beginning. That's like the stuff yeah, that this, we're, we now are like, yeah, yeah it's actually that's the actual bullshit. But like, if I'm thinking about kind of like the lesson plans and how they were structured and like the course of the year and what we were going to learn by the end. I mean, it's actually pretty nauseating. I I wonder if you could sue social studies books companies or get our money back for all of those years. I mean, for that is really schools. disturbing. It's, it's absolutely disturbing. Yeah. The food in public schools, like the relationships that they have with like dairy companies and like GMO companies, like there's a lot with the health. And I know this is different and like, other places, but there's so many things that are wrong with the public school system. It's fucking insane. Wow. Okay. Wow. Colonization is read up on it. There's so much. There's so the craziest thing. Much. I want to go to school with you. Come. Well, my goal is that. How much fun? Not fun. How much growth have you done? Oh, I. I mean, I'm struggling a lot because it's really hard to tour a lecture and go to school at the same time. So shout out to my professors who give me leeway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But also it informs my writing so much. And I love it because like I said, my goal of even going to school, I didn't have to go back to school. Like I have a career. I don't, I don't need to be in school per se, but I just really want to just like devour all of this information. Mm -hmm. And like, I can't wait. I just want to do lecture series forever and just like take this information and continuously travel and give this information and get people Mm. talking and really deep diving in. My favorite compliment I've ever had is that I did um, where where was I at? Oh, I did my lecture um, in New York City at a co working space, and someone came up to me after, and they're like, "Rachel, I felt like I was like at in college just now. Like I felt like I was I like- in a college mm. lecture, and I love that. Like I want everyone to come in and just feel like they're doing some like 
deep badass learning and they're ready to like go out and start it's like really using it in how they move through the world. Um, So yeah, I love being in school because I'm able to really pull exactly what I'm learning from this Ivy League university and like saying like, okay, you guys, let's meet up at this co-working space and I'm about to tell you all of it. Dude, that's beautiful. We should do an event. I would love to. I'd be in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) We should do like a summer school. Dude, I'm so down. (gasps) I'm so down. Yo. I'm, your, I'm first in Rolly. Summer, we're, yeah, we're planning on going Summer 2019. Summer, yeah. yeah, I'll see do you, anything. See you all there. I'll, I'll, set up all, I'll set up all the stuff for your event. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you cut the carrots for lunch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more from Anna. Yes, I love her. I guess, what are the most immediate action steps white women and wellness can do today? I'm a yoga teacher and I feel like I educate myself and I'm a social justice-minded social media platform, but sometimes I fall short on what I can do in the yoga room itself. The other thing I'm curious about is waking up with other waking up other white people with their own allyship, like people in her family. You know, it's so funny because I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start uh, keeping track of this because I get asked the same question over and over and over yeah, and over sorry. again yeah. in 800 different ways. Literally 800. Like, yeah. I'm really gonna start keeping track. I feel like even it, those two questions it comes are kind of yeah, the same. It's, it's all how can I, Rachel, tell me what to do. Yeah, that's all it is. Whether in my lectures, I, I, people ask, you know. How do I talk to my boyfriend? How do I talk to my grandpa? How do I talk to my teacher? How do I talk to the, how do I talk to the people in my family? How do I bring this into the wellness world? This isn't rocket science, everyone. <laughs> like, it's not crazy. This is like, it blows my mind how so many white women come to me and they've just graduated from university or they've just had a baby or they've just gotten married. And I'm like, did you have any instruction manuals for that? Mm. Or did you like, you yeah. just like, you decided this is what I want to do. So you figured it out. Yeah. Do mm. And it's not, yeah. it's, and it's hard. Having a baby is hard. Like being, like bringing a human into the world is hard. Getting married is hard. Traveling around the world, you know, there's people who like travel around the world for six Bang months. Taxes is hard. Then come back. Bang taxes is so We're, hard. This is what we got to do for figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, mm. this is what I have to do. So I'll figure it out. And there's resources available to me. So figure I'm going to go tap into those resources and then I'm going to pull it out into my community and I'm going to say, wow, this is hard right now, but I'm still going to do it. Like there's no, every question boils down to Rachel, make, tell me what to do and make this easier for me. The answer is, there's nothing to tell you except you're going to go out and start having conversations about race and it's going to be hard and you're going to mess up and then you're going to go out and you're going to learn and you're going to do better. Mm. Like it's, this is just like riding a bike. It's just like, like it's not, and you're going to be uncomfortable and you'll survive and thrive. Yeah. I often wonder like even that, that question, whether what percentage of people, and this is not to say that people don't want to do this. It's just more like what percentage of people is just asking you the question, making them feel better. Oh, um, for does that make sure. Sense? For sure. A hundred, there's people. And then they probably stop. They yeah. never have a conversation. But the fact that they ask yeah. a woman of color how they can help makes That's them enough. feel better for a few months. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so performative and it's all for self, this self-indulgent need to be able to say that I'm sure that's why people come to my lecture. I'm sure that's why people follow me on Instagram. Like it doesn't, it, if you hear, if you look at the group chat between me and all the other black women activists on Instagram who like are in our world, we literally sit there and we're like, Hmm, it's very interesting, you know, like, but when it's time to show up, because when it's time to show up, when it's time to vote, when it's yeah. time to start talking mm. about things that have happened, Where when when it's time to, you know, when we're, when you're sitting in a room, like who's doing stuff? And I'll never know. The truth is I'll never know. Um, but I'll, I'll continue doing my work for the people who are doing it. But I always tell people, and I'll share with your audience, is 
and I'm interested for you two to do this activity right now is just consider who do you not talk to about race? Like, just think for a second, who is it that I say, oh, I'm not, what stops you in that moment? Say like, who do you not talk to and Mm -hmm. why? And then I tell people to draw a line on a piece of paper and put on that line that whatever your answer was, was it, was it like, and usually it's like my mom, because I don't want her to be upset with me or, you know, something along those lines. And I say, great, that's your line of allyship. That's where you've decided you're done. That's where you have decided I'm not an ally anymore. Wow. Like it's there in front of you. I don't want to talk about it anymore. You go do whatever you need to do to figure out how to keep moving that line further and further. Mm. So basically all of the questions that come to me that's people approaching me saying, hi, here's my line of allyship. Wow. Motivate me. And I'm not here to, I'm not a, I'm not a motivative speaker. Mm-hmm. What are they Motivational. Called? Yeah. <laughs> I like that word. Like, no, <laughs> I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not here to inspire. I am a teacher and I'm here to teach and I hope, and I'm not, I'm also, I'm even struggling with the word activist. Like I'm not an, I'm not out here organizing people. I'm literally just offering information and I'm just hoping people have the decency and the humanity to take wow. meaningful action with it. Mm. Like I'm a writer. I'm a writer and I'm a teacher. I go out and I lecture and I write on things that I know. I'm not, there's, I'm not like out doing necessarily political work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, just, I'm just giving, I'm just like spitting facts and hoping that you mm-hmm. take them and do something with them. And people have two choices. Either you're going to say, wow, there's this information that I didn't know. So I'm going to go take action. I say, wow, that really sucks, but I'm going to sit in my, you know, whiteness mm-hmm. and I'll have someone, I'll let someone else deal with it. Mm. Damn the allyship shit. Wow. That Where was stops. fucking awesome. Yeah. That is People's awesome. line of allyship. And everything, everything up to that point, and I, and maybe I should have added that, everything up to that point is a performance. Because the action is in the is in that stuff, the hard stuff. Yeah, everything wow. up to that point is so you can say I'm an ally, I'm an ally, I'm an ally. And then you stop, and then you're done. So everything up to that, you're not. If you were an ally, you would be pushing the boundary to ensure mm. the safety of the bodies and the minds and the life experiences of whoever. Because people come in and they say, and 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 I and I bring this up, and people come in and they say, I ask the question, Why are you here? Why did you come to my workshop? Why did you pay this money to sit here and have this conversation about race? And people get so excited because they're at Rachel's workshop and they're allies mm. and they come in and they say, I'm here because I want to protect black people and I want to use my privilege to protect people of color who have been systematically oppressed. And then we do that activity. I do that activity at the very end before people mm. leave. Cause I don't, no one's oh, walking out of my, no one's walking out of yeah, everyone there. No one's walking out of my workshop feeling like they got some type of ally certificate. So they come in and then, and they, and everyone tells me like, oh, I'm here because I want to be an ally to black people. And so then I have them do that activity And so then I say, you know, whatever your line of allyship, whatever is stopping you, going back to the example of like, oh, my mom, because I don't want her to get upset with me. Who who are you protecting? White people again. Mm. Whatever your line is, it's you again ensuring the comfort. It's not ensuring the safety. It's not ensuring the well-being. It's literally, again, ensuring the comfort of white people. And that's why you're not, and you're not working towards the furthest line of allyship you could possibly be. Damn. So, wow. Thank you. I'm absorbing. Yeah. Not quite often, but I need to digest and absorb. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Truly.
I'm so happy. Literally. To be here. You're the best. Fine Fox line, Mary. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you excited about next year? And where can our women find you? My book should be coming out next year, hopefully. Uh, wow. Fingers crossed. Let us know. We'll have you back on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, fingers crossed. I have a TED Talk lined up for next year. You do? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it will be fun. And just continuing the lecture. I love doing this. I love going out and bringing people offline. I love getting people from off their screens and in rooms full yes. of others to say like, okay, we're doing this and we're here and we're learning and, you know, just being face-to-face with people. So people just keep inviting me to where you are to be in conversation and community with, you know, wherever you are in the world, really. I get invitations to so many places where people are ready to have this conversation. And as I come up, um, I'm looking for my next lecture to possibly talk to parents and how to really relate to their children and having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No worries. (laughs) Having this Mm -hmm. conversation. Um, So I'm just continuously working to build these syllabi of information to go out publicly and start having these conversations. We need you in schools. I know you guys we seriously need to do like a summer I mean, wouldn't that be so much I'm fun down. let's build our I want to build my own school too that's a lot of work and that sounds like a lot of tax <laughs> and paperwork <laughs> good so luck with true. that oh, yeah, honestly. <laughs> we'll do an underground everything's off the grid. <laughs> college college tour yeah honestly oh my yeah, I was thinking about that too we should tell you we should mm-hmm. talk about that yeah we'll talk about Dude, that that would be fucking yeah but then what would we say <laughs> she's coming in <laughs> yeah we're like hello <laughs> This is Rachel. This is from Rachel. See ya. Truly. We're like, oh, whatever. All right. We love you. Make sure you connect with Rachel. We're looking forward to um, doing this work with you guys together. Lindsay and I are looking forward to Mm. doing the work more on our own, learning more, listening more, listening more, listening more. And we're really grateful for your patience and we're really grateful for being along with us on the journey as I fumble through my words and as I figure things out um, and as I get uncomfortable with you and as we get in this conversation together and we have amazing people like Rachel on that educate, inspire, Mm -hmm. enlighten, excite and that really just, you know, do all the work for us. So thank you so much. We love you. Where can people find you? Instagram, Rachel.Cargill. Instagram Mm -hmm. is where I do most of my work. What if Instagram just went away one day? Dude, I think about that a lot. I do too. Because honestly, so many people have businesses. Yeah, their whole, yeah. That's why I love going off. That's why I love being in person. Mm, like, yeah, I, 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 I'm looking forward to the day when I'm Us not on too. Instagram anymore, honestly. I'm looking forward to the day when I'm paying someone to do mine. Oh, yeah. Or not on fine. it. Yeah, I just want to be out. I just want to like, te- when we have our school with the pink walls, we'll just be there off Instagram. Off Instagram. Yeah. Well, I think about it. It's just a constant, you know, I woke up, I did all this stuff and then I'm here and it's like, there's a constant conversation that's yeah. like, you haven't done this. You haven't yeah, done this. For sure. You haven't done this. Anyways. Anyways, so you can find me on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> All that to say, see you yeah. on Instagram. Rachel.cargo. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> my website, rachelcargo.com has a lot of my information. But right now, Instagram is my major platform where I make all my announcements. And if you have a chance, well, my whole tour sold out right now. But when I start doing it next yeah. year, we're going to announce my spring tour dates. Great. Um, and we'll, I think on we have like, Chicago and Boston, uh, Seattle, and a few other places that I've been getting lots of requests for. So be sure to follow me so you can get those announcements about when the spring tour tickets come out because I'm sure it will sell out um, just as much for as sure. the fall tour. Of course. Day. We'll share it in the Facebook group yeah. cool. so you guys can do that. And then um, in the show notes, we'll have everything, even including like the Harper's Bazaar article that you wrote and we referenced yeah. earlier. 
Thank All right, you. we love you guys. See love you later. See ya. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, again, we are working to have more of these conversations on the podcast continue to. So if you have suggestions, please send it to us. But um, we are doing their work right along with you. And um, we appreciate, appreciate you being here. Yeah, we have lives happening this week on the Almost 30 Instagram with some amazing educators that can really help us in this space. And then again, we'll be coming out with a workshop or a program that we can all do together and making sure that this conversation is top of mind for us right now. We really appreciate it. You can find Rachel, rachelcargill.com, rachel.cargill, a secret Facebook group for the conversations about this and then everything else at almost30podcast.com or almost30podcast on Instagram. We love you. We love you.